0: So Philemon, starting at verse 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this very purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, open our minds to it, have us to understand that we would be guided by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to begin with what I'll call uh, Bible basics. So now it should go without saying that when we come to God's Word, we want to understand it. And so whether we are reading it ourselves, whether we're listening to it being read to us, whether we're listening to an audio, because it's our understanding of the Bible that should guide our beliefs, inform our thoughts, and direct our actions. These three things we Christians really ought to want. And we believe this when we come to the Word of God, when we listen. We believe that all this is happening, I think. And I'm not sure that we really ought to. We ought to be more critical in our thoughts. Is it really happening? Because I'm not sure that we always are reading the Bible for understanding I don't even think that we are often or usually reading the Bible for understanding. And let me clarify what I mean. I believe we read it, and we are just listening for confirmation of what we already know. Confirmation of our beliefs, of our thoughts, of our actions. That's what we want the Bible to give us, and I believe that's what we seek, and so that's what we see, that's what we find. Now... Sometimes, however, we go to the Bible wanting this, and we see something that bothers us. And you might then study further, and you might then become a little bit more concerned, a little bit more frustrated, because you are not seeing something that squares with what you believe, think, or do, or ought not be doing. Now, at this point, it's critical. What some will do is they'll find fault with Scripture, So they dig into it deeply enough to where they can see that it's telling them something that they don't want to accept. And they'll say this, the Bible can be so hard to understand, and that's code. What it means is, I refuse to believe this. I don't care what the Bible says. Or they'll say, well, the Bible is filled with errors anyway. And so they're saying, I refuse to believe this because I don't care what the Bible says. Now, hopefully, none of you think that way, behave that way, but it's not uncommon. And we will run into that in the church quite a bit. Now, what is more common, though, than either of these two is ignore it. If you ignore it, it won't bother you. So many Christians just find themselves ignoring things. They don't even realize it anymore. Long, long, long ago, they had made that decision, and they just continue to abide by it without thinking. They are just ignoring aspects of Scripture. They don't understand because they don't choose to believe them. They don't choose to think that way and accept them. They don't choose to do or not do what Scripture is telling them to do or not to do. So... When a preacher comes to share from the pulpit, they better think carefully about what it is that they're going to share because they will come under stricter judgment. They ought to because they are doing that not only for themselves, they're doing it for all of these people that might trust them to speak the truth. Now, I share all this because I've been a Christian for 37 years. And I don't believe I've ever understood entirely the book of Philemon, which is kind of sad. And so my mind changed uh, as I read this. And what's more frightening is that I can't find anybody else that believes what I now believe. I've read many commentaries the last week. That's about how long I study for these. And so uh, I just can't find anybody that shared this. Now, this is obviously not uh, uh, comprehensive, but still, out of maybe 8 to 10 commentaries I've came across, you know, various people that have commented on the web, I believe something now that is different from what everybody else believes. So I just want to warn you that. Now, this is a small, small letter, 25 verses, 439 words. So how can it be in 36 years of being a fairly uh, erudite Christian, if I might say, being in love with the Word of God, wanting to know what it means, how could I be so dense as to not pick up on this? Well, we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. And we ignore the stuff we don't understand without giving it a second thought. And I'm not alone. We all do this. And yet, God will at times shake us awake, shake us alert. Now, I want to ask you a few questions before I read the entire letter of Philemon. Think about this as I'm reading the letter. Is Paul asking, what exactly is Paul asking Philemon to do? That's what I want you to think about as I read this to you. And I'll give you a few options. They aren't necessarily comprehensive, they might not be how you view this letter. But is Paul asking that Philemon simply accept Onesimus back into his home, into his community, into his life? Is Paul asking that Philemon accept Onesimus back into his home and life without punishment? Is Paul asking that Philemon send Onesimus back to the Apostle Paul where he's ministering? Is Paul asking that Philemon grant Onesimus his freedom, freedom from slavery? Or is there something else that I've not given you the option? Is it E? So, now let me read Philemon, and you think about those. What exactly is Paul asking of Philemon? Starting at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apthia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If, then, you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention you that owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord, Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guestroom for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So maybe you have a potential answer to my question before, but I feel like I've asked you a riddle, and now I'm going to change topics quite a bit, because you cannot address this book of Philemon without addressing slavery, because it's central to the story. If not back then... It is now in our era, in our age. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read with very little commentary texts from the Old and then the New Testaments concerning slavery. Leviticus 25, I have two portions to read. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, You shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be to you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his family. He shall return to the possessions of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought up out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. So this is an example of Hebrew brethren that dwell in Israel being indentured servants to one of their fellow brethren for a fixed time and then being freed. The text goes on. And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy, male and female slaves. Moreover, You may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you, and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you, to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. So the Hebrew brethren cannot be slaves, but... The slaves of neighboring nations who are sold to you or that the people within the land, the strangers that dwell among you that sell you their children, they can be your permanent slaves, your possessions. Exodus 21. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out, be free, and pay uh, pay nothing. So again, Hebrew, your fellow brethren, they are not slaves. They are indentured servants. They serve you for a brief time. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. Brides cannot be sold. If you've taken a wife who you bought for that purpose, you cannot sell her away if, you, if she displeases you. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, she shall go out free without paying money so she can walk away. Deuteronomy 21. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would take her for your wife, she shall be your wife, and it shall be, if you have no delight in her, Then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. Again, if a woman becomes your wife, she is no longer. From the moment you made her your wife, she is no longer a slave and cannot return to that. Exodus 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold... For his theft. Again, this is a Hebrew brethren, and yet now he is in an indentured servitude that is compulsory, not voluntary. He has to go into this to pay off this debt. Exodus 21 again. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 24. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. So for kidnapping or for brutalizing a captive, dehumanizing them, you deserve the death penalty. Deuteronomy 23, you shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master, to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. And so you're not to return captive slaves. This is on the presumption that people will want to flock to Israel because they want to be living in the nation whose God is the Lord. And they did live far better than most other nations of their time. So if some fugitive from another country fled to you to live in your midst, you were not to expel them. You were to make them welcome. So those are texts from the Old Testament. So you could see that uh, slavery differed quite a bit from the Hebrew servants. They were really more indentured servants to the uh, children or the adult pagans. They could be permanent slaves. So old, the Old Testament certainly uh, was under a slave economy. Now, New Testament. Titus 2, so Paul is writing to Titus. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So Paul instructs believing bondservants, slaves, to obey their masters. Ephesians 6, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Again, bondservants obey, and yet masters be warned. God does not differentiate between you and your slave. You're the same in his eyes. 1 Timothy 6. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters... Let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So, if you are a Christian slave who is embittered because your master is a believer and yet retains you as a slave, don't be embittered. You should be all the more grateful that your master is a Christian. Serve him as if you're serving God. Colossians 3 Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this is very similar to the previous advice, but it goes a little bit farther in saying, even if you are wronged, know that God will avenge you. Our God is just. In Romans, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the bondservants were yet to be faithful to their masters, even if they were mistreated to some degree. First Peter, this is Peter writing, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God." 1 Corinthians 7. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren... Let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So he opens and closes with the fact that you should be content with the state you're in, but he urges those that can seek freedom without bringing offense to the gospel to do so, and that if you are free, do not become a slave. God does not like men becoming slaves willfully. The last I want to quote is because I want to comment briefly on it. Galatians three twenty six through 29 for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is, I don't know that there is another verse in the Bible that is more abused and twisted out of context than that verse. If it proves anything for the liberals that use it, it proves too much. And so I just urge you, anytime you see Galatians 3.28 being used as a proof text for anything, look carefully, because it's very likely that it's being abused. So that concludes the New Testament, and you can see that repeatedly Paul urges the bond servants, the slaves, to be content in their position. Now, I want to share with you two things that I found on the web that You know, it's just you have to share because they're just so bad. It's like watching a train wreck. You just want to watch it over and over. This is InterVarsity Press, New Testament commentaries, and this is a commentary on Philemon that you find on Bible Gateway. It's in commentary concerning verses 12 through 16. Clearly, Paul steadfastly resists thinking of Philemon as Onesimus's legal owner. The story behind Paul's appeal is a profoundly religious one and has social implications. Philemon is to regard Onesimus as his Christian brother, in verse 16, as his partner in the faith, in verse 17, which makes their owner-slave relationship no longer possible. So Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon for their reconciliation. They are both his spiritual sons, and he is the religious patron of and responsible for the nurture of both. In my view, under these new and revolutionary circumstances, Philemon's only real option is Onesimus' manumission." This is a Bible commentator. He obviously ignored everything I just read in coming to that conclusion. It's just horrendous. This is the type of thing that you find, even in printed books from University Press. So be warned. A lot of bad commentaries out there. The next one is from an article I found. It's um, a student at Cape Town Baptist, uh, Baptist Seminary, and it was probably written about 10 years ago. The title of it is Of Slaves and Masters, and it's written by a person named Lin I don't know if it's a man or a woman, Rinquest. Now, earlier in this article, and it's probably written as a school paper, but they refer to a typical evangelical commentary, and this is from 1955 by a man named J.J. Mueller writing on Philemon. The letter offers an illustration of the reforming power of the gospel, which seeks to reach its purpose not by compulsion, but by inward persuasion yet does not see slavery incompatible with Christianity, but as something that could be sanctified by Christian faith. So that's from a 1955 commentary that they're now going to disagree with. So this writer, quoting two people that wrote books on, I guess, related topics, one is a book entitled Imagination and Responsible Reading by T. Hart, published in 2006, another one entitled Slavery, Sabbath, War, and Women printed in 83 by uh, W.M. Swartley. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully. Close your eyes if you must, but I'll check to make sure you're not sleeping afterwards. <laughs> Provided with the aforementioned hermeneutical honesty, you know that hermeneutics has to do with how you interpret what you're reading in the Bible. Provided with the aforementioned hermeneutical honesty by traditional commentators, we now move to suggesting a refinement of their very own discoveries into a more focused methodological motivation. It is when hermeneutical methodology comes short in presenting us with a clear-cut answer in solving current ethical dilemmas that we have to engage in the process of reading between the lines. You see what they're saying? I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to make it say what I want instead. We have many people now saying that about the Constitution as well. I don't care what the Constitution says, this is what I will interpret it as meaning. So now, I want to ask a question, and then I'll not wait for an answer. But the question is what is God's view of slavery? What do you think God's view of slavery is? I read a lot of uh, excerpts from the Bible, old and new, where slavery is obviously tolerated and regulated by God. Well, let me share with you something that I believe Jesus spoke on. Jesus didn't really comment directly on slavery, but he did comment on divorce. The Pharisees came to him and asked him about divorce, And so Malachi 2.16 reads, God hates divorce. And then Jesus added this in answer to the Pharisees. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I believe that very same answer can be given in response to the question, what does God think about slavery? He hates it. But from the very beginning, he had to institute regulations of it to prevent the most severe abuses. I want to read to you a quote from this big book I had to bring. This is uh, Rush Duny, the Institutes of Biblical Law, and this is from his discussion of the sixth commandment thou shalt murder, or thou shalt not murder, <laughs> the murder Bible. <laughs> okay, the bondservant could not have the best of both worlds. Now, he's speaking in response to the text where the Hebrew slave, who is an indentured servant position, has been granted a wife and has had children now from that wife, but when he goes out free at the end of his term, he cannot take her with him. She is not his. So he has a choice to make. He can either go free without his family or he can remain a slave. So he's talking about this. The bondservant could not have the best of both worlds, the world of freedom and the world of servitude. A wife meant responsibility. To marry, a man had to have a dowry as evidence of his ability to head a household. A man could not gain the benefit of freedom, a wife, and at the same time gain the benefit of security under a master. If he married while a bondservant, another bondservant, or a slave, he knew that in so doing he was abandoning either freedom or his family. He either remained permanently a slave with his family and had his ear pierced as a sign of subordination, like a woman, or he left his family. If he walked out and left his family, he could, if he earned enough, redeem his family from bondage. The law here is humane and also unsentimental. It recognizes that some people are by nature slaves and will always be so, It both requires that they be dealt with in a godly manner and also that the slaves recognize his position and accept it with grace. Socialism, on the contrary, tries to give the slave all the advantages of his security together with the benefits of freedom and in the process destroys both the free and the enslaved. The old principle of law derived from this law that the welfare recipient cannot exercise suffrage or voting rights and related rights of a free citizen, is still valid. I believe that's a good illustration of why God's law is what it is. It's to regulate man's irresponsibility. God hates slavery because it is a means of dealing with the irresponsibility of man, just as divorce. He had to regulate divorce because it's a means of dealing with the irresponsibility of man. So, I have a couple of more questions before we really get into the text of Philemon. This is really a long introduction. So now, where is Paul when he wrote this letter? Where is he sitting? What desk? What city? What nation? There are three options that are floated, Caesarea Philippi over towards Israel, Ephesus uh, 100 miles uh, west of uh, Colossae, or Rome. And so Caesarea Philippi is very unlikely for many reasons, and so there are really only two viable candidates. Ephesus, it's a good possibility. It's only 100 miles west of Colossae. Paul, we know, spent a couple years there or more, and this was very close then for Onesimus to escape to. And in verse 22, we read that Paul intends to visit uh, Philemon soon. He says, Prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So we know that he's in prison, but he has anticipated getting out, and he wants to come visit Philemon. These are all reasons to believe that he may be in Ephesus, fairly close. Now, Rome is also a very likely candidate. And so the people that are mentioned in verse 23 and 24, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas... Luke, we know that they all labored with him in Rome. Now, some of them labored with him in Ephesus, but we don't know that all of them did. Now, we also know that Colossians was written at this same time. They have all the same people. Tychicus and Onesimus are bringing both letters. So we know that this is happening. Let me actually read to you from Colossians 4 7 and 9. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. So, we know that Colossians is written and that Tychicus and uh, Uh, Onesimus are being handed the letter, and so it's likely that Paul handed them the letter to Philemon at the same time and said, here, men, deliver these two letters. Another question I want to ask, how did Onesimus and Paul come to meet? There is no proof in the Bible that Paul ever personally visited Colossae. It's not mentioned in Acts. As a matter of fact, For the third journey, or the second journey, they, they say that he went up north through the mountains. So now, I don't know though that Paul had never personally been to Colossae. And the reason I wonder is verse 22 But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. This seems very familiar, don't you think? If he had never stayed in Philemon's home, do you think he would write that way to him? Please prepare a guest room for me. I trust that through your prayers I'll I'll be granted to you. I think he's been there before. And I think when he was there before, he would have then likely met this slave, Onesimus. So perhaps Onesimus knew Paul. They knew one another to recognize one another. Now, there's something else here, too. We know... That in verse 11, Paul refers to Onesimus as unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. This is a pun. He's he's telling a pun because the name Onesimus means profitable. So, he's using his very name to say that he was once unprofitable to you, I agree, but he is now profitable to you and to me. So, we know that Paul knows Onesimus to some degree. Now, he's been meeting with him. He could have just learned all this through Onesimus, right? And so we know this. Could Philemon have told Paul this? Maybe, but I think it's very likely that Onesimus did. He admitted to Paul that he was a worthless servant. Let me read a little bit more from what we have. In the commentaries, when you read the commentaries, it's widely believed that Onesimus stole from Philemon. If then you count me as a partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would me, but if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. So Paul is hinting at the fact to Philemon that, yes, I know you have something against Onesimus that's legitimate, and yet I'll take care of it. And then he goes on to say, not to mention to you that you owe me your very own self besides. I mean, Paul is not above that. I mean, he's like, you owe your salvation to me. I led you to the Lord. How can you be so petty as to want reparation for this that Onesimus has stolen or whatever? So he's widely thought to have stolen and run away. Look at verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. That's a very interesting way of putting it. If Onesimus had run away, why wouldn't Paul have simply said, Onesimus ran away? For perhaps that's why he fled from you. But no, for perhaps he departed. It's a very diplomatic way of describing what happened. Verse 12, Paul says, I am sending him back. Now, this disturbed me, and I asked Phil about it, because Paul is sending a fugitive slave back to his master. On the face of it, it appears that he's violating the law. And I know, though, the law can be narrowly construed to be that if you're living in Israel, and this applies to you, and it's a fugitive from a pagan land, and they want to live better. And so there are ways of, of seeing that Paul would not be breaking the law, but there's something else that's even more obvious if you've thought about it. Is Onesimus' handcuffs? Is he, is he attached to Tichicus by manacles? No. Onesimus is going of his own free will. He's not being forced to do this. Now, Paul might have talked him into it. I think Paul can be very persuasive, but maybe. But what if none of what I've said is exactly what happened? What if what happened was different? There are three times, and let me read them. Paul says this, I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart. In other words, Paul loves this young man. Verse 15, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Verse 17, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Three times, in short order, Paul says, Philemon, receive him, receive him, receive him. He's pleading with him to be returned. Now, There were certain things about this whole story that did not sit well with me. I never came to intellectual rest. And I didn't want to bother Phil. We all bother Phil. And he's supposed to have time off. And so I thought, okay, God, please help me. So I kept meditating on it, reading it, listening to it, all the way back and forth to work. I just keep hitting back on my CD player to keep listening to this over and over and over and over again. What the text does not address fully is how Onesimus and Paul came to meet a thousand miles away in Rome and why he wants to go back. Those are puzzles to me. I believe what happened is this. I believe Onesimus was thrown out. He did not run away. He was a lazy, good-for-nothing slave, and his master threw him out on his keister. That's what I believe. And I believe the commentaries are all wrong because they obsess over slavery so much. They think, of course Onesimus doesn't want to remain a slave. We all just presume life as a slave must have been horrific. This is what I think happened. Onesimus was a bad slave. He was lazy, he lied, he stole things. Philemon was a kind Christian master, but whose patience wore thin. And so Philemon one day, perhaps in a rage, perhaps not, perhaps very methodically, just ejected Onesimus from his home as an incorrigible thief and liar and lazy man. Now, you remember years ago I preached on Adam and Eve getting ejected from the garden. Where do you go when you're ejected from all you've ever known? I believe he went to Paul. He was scared, and he fled to Paul. He knew Paul. He had met him before, and I believe he sought him out for help. Now, he's still a lazy person. He still steals and lies. But he needs a sugar daddy. He needs somebody to care for him, to provide for him, to help him get back in Philemon's good graces. So he finds Paul and he gets far more than he wanted. He gets saved. And we know how horrible that turns out for us, doesn't it? Just turns our whole lives upside down. God just changes everything. So Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord and trains him to be industrious and sends him back to Philemon with Tychicus and these letters. Now, the title that I'd given to Gary was son or slave and I intended to focus on the or as being a false either-or dichotomy, son or slave. That's the way liberals view it. You can't have both. Onesimus is a son, and you accept him back as a son, and you free him, or you take him back as a slave and treat him as a second-class citizen in God's economy. Neither of those is, of course, true. These people could coexist. I mean, the texts I've read... Clearly, clearly teach that. The new title, if you've seen it on your, on your handout, is The Prodigal Slave. And the reason I chose that title is that as these days wore on, as I'm meditating on this text, the prodigal son story kept popping into my head. Now, maybe because Phil had just covered it, but also it fit. Let me give you five correlations. In the prodigal son story, the son leaves home willingly, I believe here the slave leaves home unwillingly. He's ejected. The father gives his his property to his son. And in Philemon, the master, I believe, gives the slave nothing, but Onesimus may have likely had some property of his own that he'd been pilfering. Third, the son goes to a far country and parties and wastes that all. The slave, in fear for the future, goes to Rome and finds Paul. The son comes to his senses. The slave comes to the Lord. The son returns home, open to being a slave in his father's home. But the father, the father, accepts him back as a son. Onesimus, the slave, returns home as a slave, and yet he's accepted. As a son. I believe there's just a beautiful corollary between these. Now, this is kind of scary, and I might change my mind if people show me stuff that disagrees with my theory. But yet, everybody assumes Onesimus hated being a slave, and I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I believe he wants to return to Philemon. The truth is that he took advantage of it for much of his life, and he didn't appreciate it, and now he will on his return. Everybody nowadays wants Scripture, wants Paul in Philemon to lobby for the freedom of Onesimus. But what did Paul do? He labored for the soul of Onesimus, and he got it. Spiritual salvation is so much more powerful, so much more permanent than earthly freedom. What does it benefit a man if he gains freedom but loses his soul? So I believe this, but I would be open to correction if uh, people have other views of this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that makes us think. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you guide us into the future uh, oh, despite our vast ignorance. And yet, Lord, you continue to shine a light on the path that we're to take. So we thank you, Father, for this grace that you give us each day, each week. And we pray that we would appreciate our spiritual heritage, our spiritual Slavery. Lord, all people on earth are enslaved. They are enslaved to Satan to do his will, both spiritual and physical, or they're enslaved to you to do your will. So we pray, Lord, that we would embrace this slavery to Christ, just as Paul did, bragged about it repeatedly. We ask you, Father, to awaken us to how great life is as a slave in your home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.